from Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You have heard that it is said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Bible tells a story of a man named Samuel who was a prophet in the time of Israel. And God came to Samuel and he said, I want you to find me the next king of Israel and you're going to find him among the sons of Jesse. And so Samuel went to Jesse's house and he said, I want to meet your sons. So of course, Jesse brought out his oldest son and Samuel was very impressed with him. 
He was strong and handsome, and he talked like a king, and he behaved like a king. And Samuel thought, surely this must be the one God has chosen to be the next king of Israel. But God said to Samuel, nope, he's not the one. So Samuel said to Jesse, can I see another one of your sons? And one by one, Jesse brought out each of his sons to meet Samuel, and each one was as handsome and as strong as the last. Samuel thought, surely this must be the one that God has chosen to be the next king of Israel. But for each one, God said, nope, he's not it. Finally, God said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel went back to Jesse and he said, do you have any other sons? And Jesse said, well, there's the runt of the bunch. And he literally used the word runt. He's out in the fields tending the sheep. Samuel asked, can I see him? So Jesse brought his youngest son, David, and God said to Samuel, he's the one. David went out on to become the most famous king of Israel, and he was known for being a man after God's own heart. The lesson that God speaks to Samuel in this story is a theme that we see running throughout the Old and the New Testament, and it's this, that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the inside. He cares most about our hearts. But we humans are so good at looking at the outward appearance. We're so good at thinking about how we act and look and, and what that represents. And we're so good at judging others based on how they look or how they act. We're in the middle of a political campaign right now, and we will all be at the polls tomorrow voting. And these politicians are a great reminder of how we can curate our outward appearance to line up with a reputation. I mean, things as simple as whether or not a candidate chooses to roll up their sleeves or not, or wear a tie or not, all signal something that they're trying to say to us about them and their platform. And I think no other generation is a, as adept at thinking about their outward appearance and their outward actions as this next generation coming up because of social media. Social media creates this platform that encourages us to think about the ways that we're curating our image and the reputation that we're sending to others around us. I'm teaching a writing class right now at University of Waterloo, and I've noticed with this generation of students that while they may be on Facebook, they never post anything to the Facebook wall. They only ever use it for Messenger. And when we were in class a few weeks ago, we were discussing social media, and I asked my students, why is that? Why don't you all ever post anything on Facebook? Because meanwhile, here I am, I'm putting up everything personal. I'm talking about my faith, my politics, my kids. Um, and they all agreed and told me why. Can you guess why they're not on Facebook posting? It's because their parents and their grandparents are on Facebook now. And so they're very aware of the image that they're putting up on Facebook, and, and they, they want their parents and their grandparents and their families to only see them in a certain way. We're in the middle of a series right now that's called Things Jesus Didn't Say, and we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. And this week's title of the sermon is Post Only Your Best Pictures. This is most certainly something Jesus would not have said and would not say today based on the verses that Mel read for us this morning. Because as we learned from Samuel, God cares most about what's in our hearts more than he cares about what's on the outside. 
So in the Sermon on the Mount, let's set the context. This is Jesus' preeminent sermon in which he's really shaping the values and the ethos of his followers. He's reframing for them what it's going to look like to be the children of God now that he has arrived on the scene. Before Jesus arrived, um, when we talked about this last time when I, I preached on the last godly king named Josiah, God had made a promise to Israel in the Old Testament that they would be his people and he would be their God. And he had given them a series of commands and laws to follow because that's the way he was going to create a muscle memory in them um, that would help define them as a nation, um, help set them apart, would help shape their identity as redeemed people that were going to change the world. But as we see in the Old Testament, the promise failed. In other words, the laws, while they changed the behaviors of the Israelites, didn't actually change their hearts. And as we know, God is after our hearts. And so, um, excuse me, he decided to give a new promise. And this new promise was situated on the person of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 5, which you all talked about last week, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I'm here. I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets or the writings. I've come to accomplish their purpose. So what is he saying here? That he's come to deepen the rules, to move them forward and um, out of an outward expression of identity and allegiance into an inward transformative paradigm that changes us from the outside, from the inside out. So as we see from Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is reinterpreting some of the old laws. And this week, in chapter 6, Jesus shifts his attention and tackles three religious practices that the Jews would have already been doing. These people sitting on the mount, listening to him preach, would have already been doing these practices as the children of God. So Jesus is saying, let me take these things that you're already doing out of obligation, and let me show you a new way to do them that transforms you from the inside out, a way that captures your heart. So the three practices were these things, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. So giving to the poor, as an Israelite, this was a religious obligation. It wasn't a humanitarian act. It was required and expected that if you were following Torah, you would be giving to the poor. Then there was prayer, and there were set times for prayer, and there were set formulas for prayer. There were prayers that were done together in a corporate fashion, and then prayers that were done in private. Um, it was the custom at 3 o'clock every day that you would do a private prayer in conjunction with the evening sacrifices that were happening at the temple. And then there's fasting. Fasting was a way of humbling yourself and seeking God's favor. And we've just passed on October 8th and 9th Yom Kippur, which is a religious holiday celebrated by the Jews in which the entire community is required to fast as a way of atoning for the previous year's sins. So it's not a question of whether or not the people listening to Jesus would or would not have been doing these things. They were. They were giving to the poor and praying and fasting. But Jesus is saying, but that's not enough. And I can almost hear the groans and the sighs of his most conscientious listeners who are like, come on, are you kidding me? That's not enough. I've got to do more. What more do I have to do? But Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. What he's saying is that it's not just enough to do the right thing. You need to do the right thing for the right reason. 
Jesus is after our motivations here, our hearts, because Jesus knows that as we as humans, we have an uncanny ability to get it twisted. We have an uncanny ability to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. There's this phenomenon in social media that I learned about several months ago, and it's called virtue signaling. Have you all heard of this, virtue signaling? It means you post something on social media to make you look really good or woke or moral or good, uh, but you're not really backing it up. You're not really walking the walk behind it. So I might post a picture of a refugee to help raise awareness about the refugee crisis, but am I participating in the ride for refuge? Am I donating to refugee organizations? Am I volunteering my time to teach English in the community? No. But when I post these pictures, I can pat myself on the back because I'm really good and I'm signaling to everybody who sees it that, hey, I'm right thinking about this. I'm a good person. I'm woke. I'm all about social justice. But it isn't actually transforming the way that I'm living. And for Jesus in these verses, that's really what he's putting his finger on for these listeners, that, that if they're not careful, they begin to give to the poor or pray or fast, not out of a genuine love for neighbor or God, but as a way of virtue signaling. But that's not enough. Brennan Manning writes in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, the noonday evil of the Christian life is the temptation to lose the inner self while preserving the shell of edifying behavior. Suddenly I discover that I am ministering to AIDS victims to enhance my resume. I find I renounce ice cream at Lent to lose five extra pounds. I drop hints about the absolute priority of meditation and contemplation to create the impression that I am a man of prayer. At some unremembered moment, I have lost the connection between internal purity of heart and external works of piety. I have fallen victim to what T.S. Eliot calls the greatest sin, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. So in the midst of this, Jesus drops this phrase. In the middle of this virtue signaling and the tendency to get it twisted, Jesus says something three times. In all three circumstances, he first sets up the negative. Don't do it like this. Don't do it for outward praise. But do it in private because... Your father who is unseen sees the things that are done in secret. He says it three times. Your father who is unseen sees the things that are done in secret. Your father who is unseen sees the things that are done in secret. Your father who is unseen, your father. In that moment, Jesus reminds his listeners of the relationship that is integrated into these acts, that there is a loving God who is near at hand and attentive to what they are doing. He shifts these religious practices from something that's done as an obligation, as a way of checking off a to-do list, as a way of virtue signaling, into something that's done out of relationship with our Father, who is loving and who is near at hand. It makes me think of my son, Nathan, who's eight, and he has a reading log for school. He looks waving back there. Um, and what we're supposed to do is for every night that he reads, I'm supposed to sign the log and, and list the title of what he's read. And I got to tell you, I am terrible at filling out this log. And it's kind of embarrassing because I'm an English PhD, 
And we love reading in our home. My daughter loves to read. My husband always has a book on the go. And yet I am terrible about reading with Nathan every single night. And I carry this guilt with me that I am, like, I'm failing as a mother. Because if he gets 50 nights of reading, he gets a nice big ribbon that he can pin to his shirt and wear at school all day. And everyone will see what a great reader he is. If he gets 100 nights of reading, he gets another ribbon. And I just feel like I'm failing my son because I'm not being disciplined enough about his reading. But if I look at it as a source of obligation and a checklist of things I need to do in order to be a good mom, then I'm missing out on the other reality of these nights of reading together. And it's this, that when I do remember to read with Nathan, it is the sweetest, most intimate moment between the two of us. He curls up on the couch next to me, and we read together, and my heart just fills up. I love it. Some of my best and fondest memories growing up are of my dad reading to me, and the same thing, curling up on the couch with him and him reading the Chronicles of Narnia to me. There's this relationship that's the context of this practice that can drive it deeper. And in the same way, Jesus is reminding his listeners that there's a relationship with God that is the context of these religious practices that can drive them deeper and allow them to become the ways in which they connect to their heavenly Father. Jesus also knows that not only do we have the tendency to do the right things for the wrong reasons as a checklist or out of a sense of obligation, because, but because we're also trying to feed our fragile egos. He says, don't blow the trumpet so everyone can see you giving to the poor and see how good you are. And it made me start wondering, why do we have this compulsion to want to do these things publicly anyway? I mean, what is driving us internally that makes us hungry for others to see how good we are and praise us and validate us? What is that? And I think the truth is that We all have this insecurity or this hunger or whatever you want to call it inside of us uh, that has the ability of turning what's meant to be a good gift into a burden. We have the ability to take something that's meant to bless us or others and then suck the life out of it so that it will sustain us and fulfill us. One of my love languages is words of affirmation. And I used to be really embarrassed about this for the longest time because I thought, well, I just want everybody to praise me. Uh, but the reality is, is that no, it's actually, it's meant to be a good gift. And it's a way in which my husband and my children and my friends can show me love. And when they say nice things to me, I feel seen and known and appreciated. And that can be exactly what it is, a gift, a way of them showing that they love me. And yet, if I am feeling tired or run down or stressed or insecure, if I'm not at my best, I can have a tendency to turn that love language into a battery to generate life in me. I start trying to suck life out of it to fill me up. And I start baiting my husband or my friends to say nice things to me because I want it somehow to feed that hunger inside of me. Maya Angelou writes in her book about the way, um, many of her books, about the ways that fame has changed her. And she says, since becoming famous, one of the moments she fears most is when she's in a room or at a party and someone comes up to her and says, I'm sorry, I can tell you're really important because everybody's like talking to you and deferring to you, but I don't know who you are. Are you anybody? And Maya Angelou says that she fears this moment because she's never quite sure how she's going to react. She says if she's feeling gracious and grounded, then she'll laugh and say, oh, thank you so much for noticing 
But if she's not, if she's feeling kind of fragile or an insecure, then she says the worst of her comes out and she'll say, well, yes, actually, I'm a very famous poet and I'm sorry you didn't know it. <laughs> I think we all have that inside of us, right? Like when we're not at our best, when we're hungry, when we're tired, when we're triggered, when we're stressed and anxious, we feel the need to turn gifts into batteries to sustain us. And Jesus knows those batteries will never be adequate enough. He knows those batteries will only ever be meager representations of the eternal gift of love and nourishment that our Heavenly Father has for us. And so he says, your Father sees these things. Do it for your Father. It makes me wonder how we would do these good acts of service like tithing or volunteering or taking meals to friends who are sick. How it would change the way we do these things if we knew deep down in our bones that we were held in loving arms of a heavenly father who is our significance, who is our comfort, our safety, our security, our validation. I think we'd start doing these things differently. I think I'd start tithing, not because it's the right thing to do and because if I don't, if I don't give, then God's not going to bless me, but I'd start tithing because I'm overwhelmed with gratitude for the ways that God has provided for me and my family, and I want to show him that gratitude. I'd start praying, not because I want to be so holy and pious, but because I genuinely just want to be in God's presence, and I want to show him my love. Maybe I would fast differently, too as a way of reminding myself physically of my need so that I can remember my spiritual need for Jesus, not just because I want to lose a couple extra pounds. I think if we can hold these lessons that God teaches Samuel all the way back in the New Testament, that he doesn't care about what's on the outside, he's after our hearts, if we could start to move inward and look at our motivations and begin to look at these religious practices that we're involved in, going to church every week, volunteering, giving, any of the things that we try to do week by week to try to be good, if we could remember that we're doing them out of relationship, not out of obligation, that's the moment when we get to crawl up on the couch with our Heavenly Father and rest with Him and sit close with Him. If we could remember that we're held in loving arms that keep us safe and secure and give us significance, then we maybe can start doing the right thing for the right reasons. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. But, but, if we are afraid that our compulsions and our motivations may thwart us in the end, no matter how hard we try, Jesus has a really simple solution. He says, you know what, just do it in private. Just do it in private. Take away the external eyes and the affirmation. Help protect yourselves against those motives that move the religious practices into a realm of obligation and move them back into a space where you're communing with your heavenly Father and meeting with him day by day. In the end, Jesus shows us in these verses that God is after our heart, and truly, there's not enough we could do to earn his love, right? We could never tithe enough. We could never pray enough. We could never fast enough. That's not what it's about. Doing those things more are not going to get us into heaven, but it's our heart. It's making sure our hearts are in the hands of our Heavenly Father. Paul reminds us that God's grace is sufficient for us, right? There's not enough doing anything. 
It's God's grace that is sufficient. And so if we can open our hands and our hearts and we can accept that grace and accept the work that Jesus did for us on the cross, then we can let go of the obligations and sit in the presence of God and meet with him. Let me pray with us today. Lord Jesus, we come to you as a community with our hearts. And we know, Lord, that that is what you want more than any of our actions, any of our doing. We know that we will never be able to give enough to earn your love. We'll never be able to pray enough to to get into heaven. We'll never be able to fast enough to earn your favor. But Jesus, we praise you that the work you did on the cross is enough, is sufficient, and covers over all of that. And so, Jesus, we come to you only with our hearts this morning, leaving behind our religious obligations and our practices. We come before you and we say with the psalmist in Psalms 139, Jesus, know our hearts. See what is crooked, what is bent within our hearts and make it straight. Lead us in the way everlasting so that we can receive that final reward, Jesus, that you speak about in these verses, the reward that you have for us, Father, which is this to simply be in your presence. Your presence is the reward, God. It is all we've ever needed. It's all we will ever need. And so we bring our hearts to you open and ask for your presence today and a pouring out of your spirit. Jesus, we love you and we are so thankful. In your name, amen.